This is a Clark University podcast. It looks like we're kind of back to the to the Cold War. You know, I feel like we had maybe a 10-year break from that in, in the 1990s, but since then Russia has become increasingly authoritarian. And in a way, those of us who studied the Soviet Union are equipped to study this new consolidated dictatorship. That's Valerie Sperling, a professor of political science at Clark University who has been studying Russia since she was in college in the 1980s. At the time, the world was worried about nuclear war, and Sperling thought she may seek a career as an arms control negotiator. She ended up in the PhD and higher education track, but never lost interest in Russian politics. Sperling doesn't think that invading Ukraine appeared to be in the best interest of Russian President Vladimir Putin if his goal was to prevent Ukraine from becoming a part of NATO. Even though NATO is not in the habit of admitting states with frozen conflicts, Russia launched its invasion. So in that sense, if that was Putin's goal, he already had that goal met. He already had a buffer zone, you know, between um, the Western European and Central East European NATO countries and Russia. So it seemed pretty irrational at that point to invade Ukraine. A war in Ukraine seemed like it wouldn't be a quick and easy lightning strike kind of event. So, you know, doing a little more of that rational calculus, it seemed that, you know, it would be something that the Russian population would oppose and that that would be bad for Putin's second goal, which is remaining in power in Russia. So that didn't seem very rational. The prospect of invasion seemed certain to come along with and has come along with, you know, enormous economic ramifications. You know, the extent um, and rapidity, the uh, application of sanctions against the Russian economy has been really impressive. And certainly Russia's not benefiting from that. So I think it didn't look like a rational decision then, and it doesn't look like a rational decision now. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change, conversations to challenge your mind with people who are changing our world. This interview was recorded on March 7th. Things have likely changed since we spoke with Sperling. In 1994, uh, Ukraine signed off on what's called the Budapest Memorandum, where, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were nuclear weapons in Russia, in Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus had some nuclear equipment as well. And so Ukraine and Kazakhstan and Belarus signed off on this Budapest Memorandum in 1994, where they basically agreed to sign off on the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and, you know, send their nuclear weapons out of the country, you know, back to uh, to Russia. Now, having nuclear weapons, you know, gives you a certain deterrent, uh, supposedly, right? It should prevent aggression from other states that might fear a nuclear attack. And so in exchange for that, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States were supposed to provide security guarantees to Ukraine. However, when Russia took Crimea from Ukraine, there was no kind of triggering of these security guarantees other than sanctions. And so far, that's basically been the situation now. I mean, the difference is that you know there's a lot of military weaponry being supplied to Ukraine from the West. And actually, that's really been the case since 2014, right? There's been a large increase in the amount of weaponry and military resources supplied to Ukraine. So in that sense, you know, Ukraine is is fighting alone, but it's being pretty dramatically supplied. Maybe not enough because they're up against an incredibly well-supplied opponent, but that's the way in which Ukraine has not been completely alone. 
Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has called for a no-fly zone over the country. Sperling says that if NATO is going to get involved in setting up such a zone, the argument is that it should happen sooner rather than later. That would send an unambiguous message to Russia that the United States is willing to risk uh, getting engaged, you know, shooting down Russian planes. That does seem escalatory, right? It seems like a much bigger risk of more rapid escalation. You know, other people are saying, though, A, how long do you let this go on? How many Ukrainians have to die, especially if you believe that Ukraine is not the end of the line for Putin? You know, what if that's not all he wants? What if he wants the Baltic states or one of the Baltic states? Those are NATO countries. So if the argument is sooner or later, NATO is going to get involved. Why not get involved sooner and try to cut this brutality off before more people perish? Without causing panic, Sperling says there are concerns surrounding nuclear accidents or attacks. I think, you know, war in the modern age and in a place like Ukraine is a little bit like climate change in the sense that uh, it has unpredictable effects. One would be that if Putin thinks that uh, the Russian army, the Russian military is not successfully going to be able to take some of these major cities like Kharkiv or Kyiv because of the Ukrainian resistance being so strong, insufficient troops on Russia's part, you know, the stalled convoy breakdowns on the Russian side, Putin could decide to use, say, like a tactical nuclear weapon in a substantial city, you know, to try to get that city to surrender. So far, no Ukrainian towns or cities have surrendered despite this, you know, incredibly brutal onslaught. Another possibility that one could kind of imagine for escalation would be that a NATO country would somehow get involved. I don't think that any of the NATO states at, at this point are really contemplating getting NATO forces engaged. But what happens if the Russian military made the decision to try to attack a base from which weapons were being, munitions were being shipped from Poland to Ukraine, you know, for the Ukrainian resistance? That could trigger, you know, Poland, say, to invoke NATO's charter and say, all for one and one for all, we now need to get engaged in this. I suppose there's a, maybe a third, you know, sort of doomsday scenario where Putin just, you know, loses it completely and decides that he wants the whole world to go down in a, you know, fiery nuclear furnace. What I would hope in that circumstance is that people lower down in the chain of nuclear command would refuse. I can imagine, unfortunately, the tactical nuclear weapon as a way to try to get Ukraine to surrender or a city to surrender. I think that one's the least likely. Despite limitations on free speech from Putin, Russian citizens have taken to the streets in protest. Thousands were arrested over the weekend. Now you would risk a jail term of significant size for misrepresenting you know, anything about the Russian military, including saying that the Russian military is at war in Ukraine. Right? They're, they're not allowed to call it a war. They're not allowed to call it an invasion. They're only allowed to say it's a special operation. Um, so on the one hand, right, it's possible to imagine what might happen in Russia would be mass protests against the regime that couldn't, you know, either convince Putin to reverse course or convince other elites to reverse Putin, right, to try to um, remove him from his position. On the other hand, you know, acting against that, 
you know, and against the idea that there might be significant changes in Russia, you know, is the coercive capacity of the state. Um, on the one hand, they can, they have been really suppressing the amount of independent information that can get out in Russia. So the state propaganda machine is in full control of the airwaves. It seems plausible that a lot of people are going to just kind of go along with the state propaganda line. Using those coercive methods could limit the amount of protest and you know the amount of contrary information that you know that leaks out. That said, young people certainly in Russia know how to get around uh, the internet. They know how to get around efforts to shut down social media. They know how to access alternative sources of information. So you know you, you could continue to see pretty significant protests. The other thing that I think will happen is that if this continues, if this invasion continues for any length of time, the sanctions are really going to start to bite. Russia cannot access its foreign currency reserves right now, so it can't support the ruble. So the ruble is crashing, and that's going to make life increasingly difficult. The invasion has become a central discussion point in Sperling's classes this semester. This semester, I'm actually teaching Russian politics, and it's something that we do in class every week as we do current events. And obviously, for quite a while now, we've been bringing in current events about first the escalation and, and fear of, uh, of invasion, the likelihood of invasion. Now, of course, we've been talking about the ramifications of, uh, of the invasion and what might lie ahead. My other class is revolutions and political violence, and of course, this is a bit thematic there as well, trying to think about what forces and what factors contribute to the stability of governments and what factors and forces contribute to bringing those governments down. So this invasion has really been relevant in both of my courses, but of course, as a political scientist, that's kind of bound to happen. You know, politics and violence often break out around the world and are things that we like to bring up in our classes to try to analyze and, and try to further understand. To learn more about political science at Clark, visit clarku.edu slash political science. You can find other episodes of Challenge Change wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>